0: And, and the, the commitment level that's come from this church has been far beyond anything expected or even asked for. Uh, God, God communicated to the Johnsons uh, his affirmation through our sending. And that's really cool. From one of the first conversations that I had with the mission board uh, as their pastor asking me what I thought in terms of them, going to the mission field, to how you have gotten behind this. This is a testimony of, like Denny said, it's just God's grace and God's sovereignty and his power over this. We're excited for this, but here is uh, just a little bit of the heart of the Johnsons. They say, to our dearest church family, our hearts can never fully express the deep love we have for each of you, but we will try. In the almost six years of being in this family, we have loved seeing each one of your faces and knowing you in a relational way. We treasure Sundays and community in every sense of the word, treasure. Through deep relationships, we have grown in our walk with him. Thank you for how you have loved us as a family and walking with us over the years. Thank you for letting us walk with you too. We appreciate your accountability, advice, encouragement, edification, prayer, and support. Thank you for being our sending church. Thank you for partnering with us. But mostly, thank you for sharing life with us. In John 13, 35, it says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, you have loved us so well. Continue to love well, seeking out the least in our church, the needy and those who need to experience the love of Christ. When we leave, our church family is the hardest part of leaving. We love you treasure you, and pray for you often in our prayers. We're praying for others in our church to either join us or go else, somewhere else in this world. We pray for laborers to go out. Pray for our church family to be fully surrendered and to be on mission in, the, in our city. Revival starts first in your hearts. We're praying for a continued urgency to reach the lost in our community. We are praying for God to move on our church hearts to reach this community and beyond. We love you all dearly, and we will miss you every. uh, We will miss every moment with you. Love your Johnson family. Now, this is a as they've been counting down the last. This is their last Sunday because they'll be on a plane during uh, our our gathering next Sunday morning. But uh, just to express our church, of course, I, I told the the group Friday night gathered for prayer, I said, really, Darien's the, the missionary, and everybody else is along for the ride, because from the moment that they came into this church, uh, Easter will be six years, uh, or no, seven, Easter will be seven years, so it's been over six years. They have, they found their way into our hearts, because they love well, and we're very thankful to have experience, and, and this church, in large part, is, is who we are, because of their eagerness and their excitement. Uh, not just right now to go to the mission field, they've always had this on their hearts. They've always had uh, ministry and mercy and mission on their hearts. And so it, it's with uh, great excitement that we send, but it also, it is with sadness because we're gonna just miss seeing them every week. We're gonna miss the excitement that they bring to our gatherings, they bring to the ministry components of this church. But guys, thank you for loving us so well. Thank you for loving us and, and welcoming us into your Hearts, uh, you have made room in our hearts, and that will stay. That will always stay. So, um, we're excited. We're excited for technology. Praise the Lord for technology, because years ago, if this was hundred years ago, we'd be telling them bye, and we wouldn't know if they would, we would see them again in this life. But thankfully, we get to we get to plan for that. Lord willing, we get to plan for that. We get to plan for uh, newsletters, and they get to watch. Uh, our sermons and our services online. And so we're just, we're thankful to be of that support for you guys. But we love you. We love you dearly. And You will be missed. But uh, we, we're gonna hug on some necks a little today as well as Tuesday night. They'll be with us. Uh, but if you have to figure out a time to see them this week to hug, uh, hug on some necks, do that because it's, it's, this is a great moment in our church and I'm excited for that. All right, kids, thanks for hanging uh, in there. You are dismissed to children's ministry. <clears throat> And if, uh, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, I need uh, to give a disclaimer. I'm hopefully not going to cough my way through this entire message, but... You know if I have to cough and all of a sudden it's jolting in the speakers, that's why. But I, I'm I would trust the Lord. <laughs> See, look. Like you're not supposed to talk with stuff in your mouth. <laughs> I am. So <clears throat> I don't know if if you're like me and this uh this year, weirdly enough, the Christmas season has just Flown by, and all of a sudden, Christmas is Wednesday, and we're like, Whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. Wait a minute. Okay, it's it's this. You know, in in all of the commotion that comes from this time, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do, where we're going to go, and do we have all the presents for everybody? We need to make sure that we don't we don't become casual with the Christmas story. We want we want to be familiar. But we don't want that familiarity to breed a casualness to where we don't think about what this really means and what we're really celebrating. We are really celebrating God becoming man. That's a big deal, a huge deal. The reasons why I think our culture misses the the true reason why, but as believers, as the church of Jesus Christ, we we have the light to be able to show forth exactly why he was born. Because look. Simply put, he was born to die. And we don't see that when we look at a little uh, manger scene. Uh, Martin Luther said, whenever we look at uh, a baby in that manger, or think of Jesus in that stable, that, that trough of wood, we need to be thinking of the wood he'd be hanging on when he was dying for our sins so we would be raised to new life with his resurrection. Uh, this is what the prophet Isaiah is uh, prophesying, he's foretelling this coming. The word of the Lord says in, in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we ask that you would stir wonder and amazement in our hearts yet again. As we think of the glory that, is, that was prophesied for a child to be born, a son to be given, and how we understand that son to be Jesus, the King of all glory. So we could have eternal peace. Not a temporal peace that's here today and gone tomorrow, but an eternal peace that starts today and lasts forever. Highlight your glory for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Even though this Christmas season has come quickly for me, personally, I have still have had opportunity to listen to the classic holidays iTunes station. I do like that one. And as I've been listening, there have been uh, a few songs that I've listened to that have a particular theme, and it's the theme of peace on earth. And, and these are by some notable artists, John Lennon, Stevie Wonder, uh, David Bowie and Bing Crosby, that very odd pair that came together back in the, in the 70s to sing that song. The theme in being peace on earth uh, is a Christmas theme to be certain, but the way they're singing about it I think sometimes misses a point. In Luke chapter 2, uh, LeVon read this during our, our worship time. But if you look at verse 14, where, where this is announcing for unto you, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was, a, a, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So peace is promised with Jesus' birth, just like peace is promised in Isaiah 9, where he's the prince of peace, and this peace will have no end. So they're singing about this, but when we listen to what they're singing, they pick up on uh, which every culture that's ever existed desires for no more fighting. And we just have no more wars. No more fighting. And that's what they were picking up and singing about. John Lennon, in his song, Happy Christmas, the subtitle is, War is Over. He says, a very merry Christmas and a happy new year. Let's hope it's a good one without any fear. War is over, over if you want it. War is over now. You have a, a choir in the background singing, War is Over. Stevie Wonder Popular song, Someday at Christmas. He said, Someday at Christmas, there'll be no wars. We will have, when we have learned what Christmas is for, when we found that life's, what life's really worth, there'll be peace on earth. And David Bowie and Bing Crosby, uh, peace on earth, can it be? Years from now, perhaps we'll see. See the day of glory. See the day when men of goodwill will. Live in peace, live in peace again. Peace on earth, can it be? And the refrain is, every child must be made aware. Every child must be made to care. Care enough for his fellow man to give all the love that he can. Now, these songs, they capture that fundamental desire that everybody has of can we just stop fighting? No more wars. But it reveals a misconception from our culture. Because these songs reveal that peace... Really is ultimately just a decision that we make. We just make a decision for peace. Let's just stop fighting. But is it really that simple? I think it's an oversimplification because we know from Scripture and Jesus tells us where evil really is located. It's inside of us. So the more I try to look at somebody else and say, Will you just stop fighting me? I have to realize and point the finger back at me no, I need to. The the war really is something that's going on in me. It overlooks the reality that evil lurks in the inside of every one of us. As a result of thinking everybody's, you know, basically good, if I'm basically good and I just have to sink deep down to discover that good, then the birth of Jesus simply becomes a reminder that I can be a better version of myself. Because Jesus walked the earth and he was a peaceable guy, turn the other cheek stuff, so maybe there's a way that I can, I just live more like Jesus and be peaceful and peaceable like he, he was. But is Christmas really about self-improvement? Is it about becoming a better version of ourselves? Modern songs about Christmas have turned it into a romance. Christmas is all about uh, finding love and finally being fulfilled and being loved. Traditional Christmas carols that we, we hear kind of get lost because of the feeling-centric culture that we live in. But Christmas is the celebration of an everlasting joy brought to us by an everlasting Savior King. Christmas really is a celebration of a lasting hope, not not a hope of can my life just be better right now? But it's a lasting hope that goes on into eternity. And Isaiah 9 gives us a clear understanding of what this life and work will bring to God's people. But I love, one of the ways I love the Word of God is because it's real about who we are and how we are and where we are, spiritually, physically, emotionally. Because the very first aspect, the very first uh, couple of verses of this passage talk about a darkness, and a light shining into a darkness, and there's a gloom. In in chapter 8, really the last paragraph of chapter 8, it talks about the depth of the gloom that God's people are walking in because of the darkness that's surrounding them. And it's a reality. This darkness is a reality for every human being. If we are apart from Christ and we have not trusted Christ for salvation, the Bible says that we dwell in darkness. And this deep darkness is is a result of our sin and our rebellion toward God as well as the the result of living in a fallen world where sin happens to us. We, we get other people's darkness that makes our own darkness even darker. And we long for an escape. We long for relief that doesn't ever seem to come. We feel spiritual gloom in our distance from God whether it's a distance because of our rebellion toward him, that our sin creates a chasm. Later on in Isaiah, he says that our sin has created a chasm. God doesn't respond to our prayers like we want him to because there's a chasm that's fixed because of our sin or, or a spiritual distance because maybe we are in Christ, we are believers, we're Christians, but we still keep on living rebellious lives. We have rebellious decisions and motives that, that create a feeling of distance and darkness in our lives. We feel physical gloom because our bodies suffer and they break down. They just don't work right. We feel emotional gloom from depression and loneliness and sadness. You know, our gloom is real, and we can't ignore it for too long. We, can't, we get tired of putting on fake smiles, so uh, usually we'll retreat from other people. And, and this, this Christmas season might be a time where you feel uh, miserable all the time because you just fi- feel like you're just putting on a, a show for folks. But we get tired of that fake smile and we get, we, we can't, we don't have the energy to distract ourselves anymore with, with making believe that the Christmas season is better than maybe than what it really is or distracting ourselves with vacations and daydreaming. We just can't distract ourselves from the darkness anymore. And we feel the relentless oppression from expectations, from our own expectations of ourselves, from people's expectation of us, even God's expectation. We feel, God, I feel you're picking on me all the time because I'm not meeting your expectations. I'm not meeting your standard. And that's why he brings up Zebulun and Nephtali, because their region, which later became Galilee in Jesus' time, and that's where Jesus was raised in Nazareth of Galilee. If you follow the Fertile Crescent, guy, uh, armies didn't come directly into Israel uh, by way of the desert because you couldn't survive there very well, so you had to go along the Fertile Crescent. and as you, when, you, when you went along that Fertile Crescent, the first place you came, to. Him, Uh, came to was the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So they were were always under attack. You know, if three months went by and they hadn't had an invading army come in and ravage everything, they were just thinking, all right, it's been too long, things are going well, something else is going to drop. And we live like that, don't we? We live sometimes with this Eeyore approach where it's like, well, it might be good now, but it's going to stop at some point. We don't have that joy that keeps on looking and hope for something else. And so, look, Galilee of the nations, they were picked on all the time. But God's telling them, you who feel picked on, feel the oppression of every invading army that comes in and the relentless uh, uh, pursuit of those armies. There's freedom. There's freedom from those armies because there's freedom from oppression. And really that points to the inside of what God will do in us. The darkness brings gloom and the darkness is everywhere. We can't escape it. In in chapter 8, Isaiah says, look, you're going to mediums and necromancers to try to figure out how to escape the darkness. You're never going to be able to figure it out. You can't do it with your own effort, with your own intellect, with money. Nothing can escape the darkness. And it's in this darkness that a light comes in and shines. See, God's, God's honest with the reality of how we live. He doesn't He doesn't pretend that we're better than we are. See, the the most loving thing he does is come to us and say, you're in worse than you even know. But the good news is that I've sent my son as a child to come free you from the impression that you long to be freed from every day. It's into this darkness that the light shines in, and Emmanuel, God with us, arrives. That means there's hope. This whole passage and all the prophecies, uh, the prophecies pointing to a Savior, a Messiah that would come, they're all hope-filled passages Because they were giving God's people hope that one day the war will cease, but maybe not first the external war that we want to cease. Maybe it's the internal war that's going to cease. See, Because when, when we see in verse 2, people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and then in verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of harvest. The light that shines on the people walking in darkness brings joy. It's a hope-filled joy, knowing that God is in control. And the pinnacle of that joy is that of at harvest. When, when the fall comes and they, they bring all the harvest in, And there's so much there that they divide the spoil with one another. We have so much we can bless others. Isn't that what we dream of being like in this life? Uh, Lord, can I have so much blessing that it it spills over? That's the type of joy that's being described that freedom from oppression will bring. There's a release from this oppression we see in verse 4. Release from the captivity and it's accomplished not by what we're doing, by, by what God's people are doing, it's accomplished by something outside of them. The yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Look at that last line, you have broken as on the day of Midian. God brings up Midian. Well, first, he, the, the yoke that they are experiencing that, rem, that reminds them of the yoke of slavery that they had in Egypt under Pharaoh's reign. And now they feel this yoke of slavery to sin again. They're feeling it again and there's a promise that somebody else is gonna take this yoke. And we know that's Jesus when he came and took the yoke of our slavery to sin and died in our place on Good Friday to be raised on Easter Sunday. In Matthew 11, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's a call. Oh, what a sweet, precious call that is from our savior. Come to me, you who labor, you're worn out. You're heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It doesn't promise first, or less rest in your relationships with other nations or in your family. It says, rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Then he brings up the reminder of Midian to prove God's going to do this. You don't have to work this. They all knew the story of Gideon from Judges seven and eight around there, where Gideon is called to free, to lead God's people out of the oppression of the nation of Midian, the Midianites. They're they're feeling that oppression; they felt it for years. God raises up Gideon as a judge when he does the fleece thing, just to try to say, "God, are you really calling me to do this?" And Gideon goes out and tries something in his own strength. He brings down; he actually he he tore down a, a. an idol, and then ran and hid. He was that bold. Uh, But later on, God said, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to free you from uh, your oppression by actually, I'm going to reduce your army from over 30,000 to 300. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a torch and a clay pot and a trumpet. Lord, where's the sword? You won't need that. See, God's weapons for warfare are not our weapons. That's why when we try to do good enough for him, we don't find the grace that we think we deserve because that's not the weapons he's using. That's not his currency. He says, I'll give you a light. And so Gideon has, he's got 300 guys. He's going against the Assyrians, very great army. They're expanding. I'm sorry, the the Midianites, they're going against Midian. They have a lot more people. So they take the torch, they put it, they set fire into the clay pot, and they throw the clay pot, the clay pot on the ground, making like this, this firecracker spark, and they blow a trumpet. And they say, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Their trumpet was the sword. Their worship was the sword. God sends the Midianites into a panic. They end up turning on themselves, killing each other. God fight, uh, fought the battle. They didn't have to fight it. And the, the weapons of their warfare were not what they thought God would use. And that's exactly how he fights warfare today. He says, well, 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God Not to us. God's still telling us, I'm not going to do it your way. You still have a torch. You have a clay pot, which is your life. And the light of Christ shines in your heart. So even in all of those broken cracks of the jar of clay, the light shines through. That's how Jesus works in us. He shines through us. Even the broken parts of us, he shines through. And he gives us a trumpet called worship to draw attention to his glory and his greatness. And he says, Love me and worship me. That's my weapons of warfare. And Paul tells Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, look, we don't, we don't fight with the same instruments, the same weapons as everybody else. Because our weapon, one, is the truth. And where does it take place first? It takes place first in our minds, in our hearts, where we take thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Those are the weapons that God still fights with. And you know what? There will be an end of a war. There's first the end of what's inside of us, the war between us and God, but there ultimately is another end of war, and that's when Jesus returns. He comes for the second time, and he says he doesn't come as a baby again. He comes as the conquering hero that everybody thought he was coming as the first time. He's riding on that white horse and he's declaring it's done. He's got the name Lord of Lords, King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh and he establishes it's done. No more war. It is the war to end all wars. But look what he does in his promise that every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. See, there there are... I think this is a beautiful picture of how God redeems our pasts to be able to spread his kingdom with how he redeems it. Because what we want to do with the boots and the garments that we're ashamed of or we just don't want to pay attention to, we want to stuff it in a closet. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the boot closet, just put that in there. Never want to use those again. That's our hope. I never have to use, I never have to return, I never have to put them on, never have to use them again. God says, no, I'm, I don't want you to ignore it. I want you to take it And I want to heal you so then you can take those boots and throw them into the fire of God spreading his kingdom through our lives. What a glorious promise that nothing that has touched our lives in our past or will ever touch our lives in the future can stop his fire kingdom, the kingdom of his fire advancing in our hearts. Remember that Jesus said, uh, John came baptizing with water, I come baptizing with fire. God wants to heal everything we ignore. He wants to bring his truth to bear. He wants to bring his promises. He wants to bring his grace to bear on everything that we think. We just don't have to pay attention to it. All of us, we are, we are masters at stuffing the past or stuffing what's aching and, and stuffing what's hurting. We think, still, still, we think that if we just wait long enough, it'll go away. It never goes away because every time we walk by that closet, we smell something. You know what, it stings in there. And God tenderly says, "I want to heal that." By your healing, the gospel and the kingdom of God will spread through your life. And then there's a, it's a precious hope that's given. Verse six: For unto us, or for to us, a child is born. The promise of release from oppression and the cessation of war. It inspires hope, and that hope. Is called a child, a son to be given. You know, there this is this is to breed an anticipation in God's people, like when a husband and wife are trying to have a child and there's such anticipation with getting the pregnancy test and seeing what is the result. There's an anticipation that everybody's, that's the anticipation that's being built and saying, and and so many times when that has not been a positive test for couples, and God's saying one day, all of that sorrow is going to be gone. All that gloom and darkness, it's going to be gone. You won't have to have that feeling anymore because you'll have the feeling on the inside of that anticipation that has been settled. Oh God, you have shown up. See, we have our aspect of history to so look back on this one and understand that Jesus fulfilled everything that Isaiah is prophesying. See, the promise is for a child to be born to not simply make one family happy, to make, but to make all the families of the earth happy if they would pursue him and repent of their sins and trust him for salvation. And the child would have several names to describe, you know, we have maybe nicknames that we give our kids as they're growing up and stuff. Uh, Jesus gets a whole bunch of names even before he's born, and the names point to the eternality of his character and his his uh, uh, his existence. He is God, but he comes as a baby. Now these are familiar familiar verses. Now, and this is not this is no average. Child, like we're all average. Every single one of us and our children are average. We're just average. if you have if you have heard of somebody that is this genius and they go to college at twelve and graduate at sixteen, I always wonder why don't we keep on reading stories about those people? Kind of like do they burn out? They're great children. What about as adults? Have they cured anything? I don't know. I digress. But that's all to say. We're all average. Jesus is not, so it's very dangerous to compare ourselves uh, with him in character. But we cannot lose the wonder at why God would even become a child. Understand this. This concept is still repudiated by most every religious system on the earth. God would never become a child. Why would God ever become dependent on what he keeps together by the word of his power? But God does that. That's why it's another illustration that Christianity is not man-made. It's not just something uh, derived like, hey, how can we get together and make this really make sense for people? So, it doesn't make sense. And we can't lose that wonder because God becoming a child, becoming his creature, why would he take a body when he lives eternally everywhere all at the same time? But that's the glory and the mystery of our God. And he's given the names Wonderful Counselor. We all know what it feels like to have that word fitly spoken to us that just comforts. It's maybe a word of wisdom or knowledge. Or maybe it's just clarity that we have in our relationship with the Lord. And we think, oh, that was so helpful. And this child, he lives that way. He lives giving wisdom and comfort. But this child is also called God, Mighty, Mighty. God, a strength beyond our strength and a a wisdom beyond our wisdom and the capacity to fulfill everyone who calls upon him because this child would be God, Emmanuel, God with us. He's also given everlasting father. We usually don't look at little baby boys and start calling them father. But Jesus has given the name everlasting father, meaning he, he pays attention to the fatherless, and the neglected and the overlooked and he for all of us becomes eternal father beyond uh, <coughs> great in his blessing beyond anything or any any good a earthly father can bestow upon any child he becomes the one who gives the gifts he's the one who becomes the provision and the blessing for his people as eternal father and then he is prince of peace his kingdom will be a peaceful kingdom in the hearts of his people, and he will minister that peace. He will continue to expand and grow outwardly. But there came a point when Jesus told his disciples, his, his disciples are still looking, hey, how about a guy riding on a white horse? I think that'd be good to establish your kingdom, overthrow us from Rome. We think that'd be a good thing. Peter was like, dying on a cross? I don't think so, Jesus. No, you got this all wrong. Jesus tells them, listen to this. Remember, he's Prince of Peace. The angels have told the shepherds that, announced him that way. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. All right, hold on, Jesus. You did all these prophecies about peace and Prince of Peace. Aren't you Prince of Peace? Why is this not happening? I think Jesus is clarifying for them So you're looking for a peace that you're experiencing in a horizontal relational way. That's why he says, I've come to set daughter against mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law and man against his father. Jesus is telling us, his disciples, everybody, I don't come giving the peace that you think will provide lasting peace because what you have in mind is only a temporal relief to the peace that, or to the war that's going on. Jesus said, i come... Now, I don't give peace on earth right now. I give peace in your heart, in your relationship with God. That way, when our relationship with God is redeemed and we are reconciled to God, then our relationships with one another begin to have a different effect. War doesn't, we still have strife. We still have misunderstandings. But we have the presence of God that helps us understand how I, I need to repent of my own sin in order to have this uh increase, peace increase in this situation. So we have this peace of verse 7 of the increase, the increase of his government and peace. There will be no end. There's an ever-increasing kingdom that's promised that Jesus will rule over. Jesus is the king of all of those and us who repent and trust him. This is how the government and kingdom increase. It increases in the hearts of of his people first until that day when he gathers, he returns, the Bible says he gathers all of his people from the four winds of the earth and we see his face and then he creates a new heaven and a new earth and all the fighting stops, all the war ceases. See, but the, the war in our own hearts, between us and God being settled, that's the greatest ceasefire we could ever long for in our, in our lives Peace that Jesus brought was first, the first time was for our hearts. He will come a second time to end all war as we know them. Now, there's a call for us as the kingdom of God's beloved son to work for peace and and release of oppression. That's good for us to do. As Christians, we should be mindful. Is there anybody oppressed? We need to work, unjustly oppressed, we need to work for their release from that because I think it. it, we know it's not going to be total in this life, but it points to that life, it points to that day when it will all be done. So we work hard as a sign of an ultimate peace that will come. We work for justice for those who are oppressed and we stand for righteousness amid a culture that continues to say that what is wrong is right and what is right is wrong. That's why the light of our righteousness is crucial in our culture culture keeps on saying, just keep on looking inside and express yourself to get over the oppression. Jesus says, the more you look inside, the more you're going to be d- discouraged. He brings the peace. He sets us right in justice with him. He sets us uh, right in giving us a righteousness that is his in order for us to live that out, to point to the ultimate justice and ultimate righteousness that Jesus will bring when the earth ends. So what does this mean for us today? Just like there was hope and the anticipation of hope that Isaiah was trying to breed and stir into God's people, church, there's still that same hope for us today. So no matter what dark area of our lives we're facing, whether it's spiritual or physical or emotional, whatever the darkness we're experiencing, we get to ask Jesus' light to show up in that realm, to show up in that darkness, God, not not to expose us, to shame us, but to reveal his truth, to heal us. That's what he wants. Whatever the night is that we're experiencing, Jesus came to shine into that. And he will shine into that. We're going to sing uh, a chorus, a a song to make this a prayer for us, to shine into our nights. So let's stand and sing that together.